Hello, and welcome to Playability, where we hold conversations at the crossroads of gameplay and accessibility. I'm your host, Rebecca Strang, and I'm joined today by Tim Fowers of Fowers Games. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So tell us a bit about Fowers Games and the games that you make. So uh, Fowers Games is um, been around since about 2010, and I started with Walkstar. And most of my games are focused around cooperation or, you know, there isn't a lot of, I don't have a lot of direct competition in my games. There's things like asymmetry, but there isn't a lot of direct competition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, artistically, we have a kind of a distinct cartoony style that we've kind of stuck with and, and people like. Yeah, I've enjoyed the art style that you have across all of your games. Paperback and hardback are probably two of my favorites. I really love how those are done. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, my friend Ryan, um, we, we developed it actually for video games back when we started making video games and took it from a little bit of Catch Me If You Can, the, mm-hmm. the, the Saul Bass intro to that. And then he had had some education in illustration and he kind of pulled for some different kind of sources and, and we stuck with it. Yeah, that's great. And so here at Playability, we like to take a look at accessibility in board games, whether it's the physical side of accessibility or the social side of it. So can you talk a little bit about your design process and how you think about that when you're designing games? Yeah, I mean, we generally think in terms of the complexity. Mm-hmm. And what we try to do is take something that has a, a lot of interesting choices and a lot of interesting outcomes. And then figuring out a way to, to kind of prune that down to something that people can kind of, uh, we call it breadcrumbing, where they can like start with a basic concept with paperback. It's like, okay, you're just going to make a word and score it, and then you're going to buy this letter. And then the game itself can kind of teach you as it goes. As you get into that feedback loop of you see what your choices did, you know, oh, that letter is now in my deck, it's now in my hand. And we get people, people have mentioned paperback being a really good introduction to deck building in general for people mm-hmm. who have maybe never done it. And, you, you know, that it's just trying to take something that, that I enjoy and then being able to extend it into another audience that maybe, you know, just, it's, sometimes it's onboarding um, in how they learn it. Other times it's just limiting how much bookkeeping and in general complexity they have at any given point. But most of my games have come out to about the same complexity on the, like the board game geek measure of complexity. Mm-hmm. They, almost all my games have landed in the same area. Yeah, and I agree with paperback. It is a really good introduction to the mechanism of deck building. I've had people play that and it's when it's their first deck builder. And it is nice to have something that you're familiar with spelling words. We've all done that. Yeah. And then introducing those board game concepts. Yeah. And, and it's there's kind of different latticing you can do. And it's tricky because I, I always want to innovate as much as I can. And I find that sometimes when I, you know, make something that's just too new and there's no foothold of like, oh, okay, you know, you start with this thing that you already know and then we're going to we're going to build on that. That's where where I want to be with design. And oftentimes I'll you know, throw away ideas that are just too hard to tell on board and too hard to get the basic, you know, mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And as far as art direction in your games, I know with Hardback, it's such a beautiful game. But if you have vision accessibility concerns, 
it's really nice with hardback because you don't have to rely just on the colors. You also have the icons on each of the cards that denote the different categories. So do you do that across all of your games or how do you approach art design with accessibility in mind? I'm trying to think. It's like, I don't know that I'm, that I'm entirely colorblind. I have to think about my, I mean, not boarding your player colors, but you also have logos. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, yeah, most, I don't, I didn't use, I mean, player color seems to be a big problem with that. When, when, back when I worked at Amazon, I was at the game studio there, and we actually developed a filter for color blindness where you could just, for the different types of color blindness, you could just turn it on and mm-hmm. you could see what disappeared, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, there's usually some point in the process. I mean, these days, yes, it's, it's more the forefront. You know, just because it's people are generally more aware of it, and, and as am I. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think. There's been a couple times where, like, we've intentionally added an icon to something that's color only. But yeah, I can't think of anything right now that's tough on the on the color spectrum. What other what other type of accessibility you run into? We also run into issues with, and I haven't personally encountered this with your games. Um, with card size differences throughout the game being difficult, it, you know, if you have fine motor or any physical mm-hmm. accessibility concerns, card size can be an issue. But I haven't seen that as a concern with your games. You use pretty regular sized cards. Yeah, we do square and, and poker size for most of them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I do end up using a lot of like eight millimeter cubes, which can kind of be a pain, you know, here and there. And some of the tokens in, in Burger Bros can be pretty small. And that's kind of like a density issue. I mean, and that's generally that's kind of been a thing with Burger Bros. Is we we decided to fit a much larger game, a much smaller box, mm-hmm. and that there's been some complaints there about not about the game, about getting the game back in the box, <laughs> <laughs> and in that process. Um, I I guess I err more on that side than the kind of uh, big box of air problem. I, I really don't want to have that. So yeah, I mean, I I. I you know, and I usually try to do something creative with my boxes, either thematically or mechanically. You know, like the, my new one, Sabotage, I'm just like, well, I don't really want to, because there's a, a, a barrier like on the Captain's Honor, where there's you know, two sides and, and you can't see what the other side's doing. Mm-hmm. And instead of, you know, kind of, I'm like, well, there's all this, you know, kind of wasted space with the box. And so I made the box transform into the barrier. Oh, nice. I mean, it's, you know, it's, and it's just, it's also just like, you know, you know, there's some environmental factors there, but also just like weight, like because because I ship directly to most of my customers. You know, I'm I'm kind of optimizing my box designs around um, what ships well and what's going to look like classy on a person's shelf. And and store owners don't always like my games because they're they're not really flashy. They don't have a lot of logos on them or a lot of I don't know. Just they aren't trying to. Um, cry for attention in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so there can be hard, but I mean, like, you know, Fugitive is probably too far on the other end. It's supposed to be a briefcase, which is fun, but the logo is really just like this embossed leather look. And mm-hmm. from just, just a few feet away, the logo just disappears. So, I mean, that's probably an accessibility problem for Fugitive is not being able to find it on your own shelf. <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, in the foreign language version, so we've got some foreign language versions that people have licensed of Fugitive. They've made much more, you know, splashy covers on their, on their editions. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know you had some German editions, I think, of Paperback and Burgle Bros? Yeah, so I do my own German editions of games, but everything else I license out. And so 
you know, here in the office, I've got a Korean and a Chinese fugitive. And, and so some of these come, you know, when people license them, they send me a couple copies when they get finished. So you see how they, how they turned out. Yeah. And, uh, and then, I mean, there is, there is a temptation as a designer to, to become really very localizable. Now, with word games, there's no need because it's language-specific by nature. Um, mm-hmm. But with, with now boarding and fugitive, it turns out that very, there's very little language in the game. And you can kind of see extremes of this in games like Risk of the Galaxy, where they're like, we're going to make icons for everything. <laughs> yes. um, and, and, you know, you can kind of go too far with this stuff. I mean, it's really tempting because once, you know, once people know what those icons are, they can kind of intuit more what a cart does. And it makes the, you know, the game easier to localize. But you're teaching them another language to play your game. So, right. you know, it's... You're, you're now you've you've really front loaded a lot of the the, the you know you made the onboarding a lot harder and, and and people can have a hard time. Yeah, when everything is icons, it also creates a bigger disparity between the experienced players and someone who might be playing it for the first time, who's going to have to continually look up all of those icons yeah. to figure out what that card means. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But on another note too, I've just found that. My sensibilities as a designer, and I find this with other designers, like you start making games and there's some kind of reflection of what you like to make and what you're good at making and what kind of people end up being kind of gravitate towards what you've made. Um, And like I have a friend, he made this mutated monster goats game. And it turns out like 13 year olds and their dads really love that (laughs) game. Like he found his audience, you know, and mine traditionally you know most of my games are actually like younger couples uh, i had just found and and i think there's there's kind of some social accessibility when it comes to you know cooperative games and asymmetric games i also find are very accessible with fugitive a lot of couples like fugitive because even though you're competing you're not doing the same thing one person's running one person's chasing and so you don't feel measured in the same way against each other and so that allows people a little more freedom. Like, oh, if you got caught or whatever, if you lose, you're like, oh, well, he wasn't doing the same thing with me. And then you can flip the table and be like, okay, well, I'm going to chase now and you can do it the other way. And it it hasn't been really intentional. It's just, I'm not a, I'm not like a hyper competitive person. And so I just found that a lot of my designs end up being in this space. It's not necessarily cooperative per se. It's just not about kind of that domination. And so in game design, you actually want to find these spaces where the phrase we would use at Amazon was you want to feel like you won because of skill. You want the game to be a measure of your skill and you want the loser to think that he lost because of luck. And that ends up being the middle ground where you can have it both ways. People can feel like this is a competitive game that I can get better at, but it's not deterministic because the chess is just like, there's no out. It's just like you lost because the other person outwitted you. And so I, you know, I believe in these kind of things where these are kind of social, I guess, social accessibility or competitive accessibility. Mm-hmm. I think are important. Yeah, I agree. And then I also know that you have adapted a handful of your games to be digital as well, which opens those yeah. games up to a bigger audience too. And I've played the paperback game on the iPad, and I thought the port of that was really great, pretty intuitive to use, and it looks great too. So what was the process for doing that? Well, interfaces for 
physical to digital sometimes is easy because people have already done it. Like, like you know, we were able to follow the, the model that Ascension used, the card game. We're like, okay, this is this is good. This makes sense for deck building. And it was pretty straightforward. Whereas Brugal Bros, when we moved it over, it was a whole different beast. It, we have three different floors and you have to be able to move around. And it took the better part of a year, a year of trial and error of figuring out because it's like you try to do these shortcuts where you're like, oh, if they just swipe left or whatever, then they can do this thing. Well, now you have to teach them how to do that thing. Mm-hmm. And and so all, you know, basically a lot of these clever things we came up with, people would just miss because people kind of come into a game with different expectations. And so you kind of have to start at the basics. And you can still have shortcuts and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's really tricky to, to get a good interface. And, um, and then usually once everything is really going well, we do a, a tutorial and paperback doesn't have a really good tutorial. I think we made a better one with, with hardback and with, with Brittle Bros. And that's, you know, it's, it's hard with tutorials as well because you, cause it's just like you can make them really thorough with lots of text and then people get kind of bold with it. Or you can try to make them really brief and, or, or you can make them contextual. So like they just start playing and then as they go, you, you just kind of tell them enough to get to the next step. And there's just a lot of different approaches to, to teaching a game. It's, and it's so important because, you know, that's all I've got to learn it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a lot of a lot of what I end up kind of fretting about in digital and physical is, is people learning my game. Like it's, you know, when you're doing something new, it's really easy for people to, to misunderstand. I even have like somebody over the holidays. They're like they bought paperback and they, they sent me a note. And they're like, well, we had a Ph.D. person and an I.T. specialist and had a whole room full of smart people and we couldn't figure out how to play paperback. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. and I'm like uh, you know, so even, even when you think you've got it down, people can misinterpret or you can miss something. And I worry about that. I, I don't want people to, to have a bad time. So, you know, I keep trying to get better. Yeah, definitely. The rule book is always the first hurdle that people have to get over. So having that accessible and intuitive to flip through is definitely really important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah, rule books, man. It's uh that's, that's the real work. So what are some games that people can look forward to Fowler's Games putting out next? So, I, you know, I'm cooking on some stuff in development, but I, last summer I kickstarted a game called Sabotage. I was mentioning with the, with the barrier. Mm-hmm. It's a little heavier than my other games in the sense that it's just a little a little crunchier. than it's just, you know, I, and so even when I kickstarted, I, I told people, hey, you know, this, you know, if, if you're on kind of on the light end of, end of the scale, don't just buy this because my name's on it. Like, read about it. And if you like it, then, then buy it. And I think, because sometimes people tell me, like, oh, I'll, I'll buy anything you make. And I'm like, well, I'm going to make a lot of stuff. And they're going to be really different types. So I'm really excited about Sabotage because it's this two versus two cat and mouse game where you're, where you're kind of, it's a stealth game where you're trying to sneak around and hack and the other team is hunting you. And I'm really excited about what we did with it. But I, again, I don't want people to have a bad time. So I've just kind of like, you know, warned people and try to be really transparent with what the game's about and how it plays. But yeah, we're, we're finishing up that and getting the rules together and the, the miniatures ready. And that'll be shipping in the spring. And okay. other than that, no, no official announcements. Okay. And if people want to find you online to keep up with what you're doing, where can they find you? Fowers.games. I actually, you know, I'm not available in, in kind of most of the normal channels. Mm-hmm. So, Fowers.games is where you can get my games. And then I'm on Twitter uh, at TFowers. 
I think we have a Facebook group as well. I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't share a lot. So, <laughs> so I'm, I just, I'm not a big share. So, you know, but I'm, I'm around. Yeah. So the website and then Twitter is where folks can find info on Fowers Games. And thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to hear about some of the process behind what you do over at Fowers Games. And for our listeners, if you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us about this episode, you can email us at playabilitypod at gmail.com or find us on major social media platforms at playabilitypod. Thank you for listening, and I hope this episode helps you play with a new perspective. Perspective.